Well, it's our pleasure again tonight to have uh, Charlie Clough with us speaking on the biblical framework for facing the intellectual, moral, and spiritual challenges of the 21st century. And before we get started, I'd just like to thank Charlie for taking the time to come out and uh, speak to us this weekend. Uh, Charlie has a full-time job, and this is something he does uh, in his free time. So it's really a great thing that he's uh, been willing to come out and do this. And uh, I understand he's planning on retiring in a couple of years, and we'd just like to tell you that Houston's a good place to retire in. So you might want to think about that. Thank you for that introduction. I'd also like to thank the people who uh, contributed to my uh, nice stay here. I know there was a lot of logistics involved, a lot of people, and I want to thank you for a very hospitable time here. It has an, has an, it's, an, it's a temptation that Houston might be a place to retire. Uh, um, tonight I would like to finish up talking about the background and the structure of the framework. And I want to start where we left off last night, thinking about how people, all of us, come to believe the Word of God. And as I said last night, the struggle we have as Christians in our time is that faith, the idea of believing something, is considered to be kind of a weak form of knowledge. If you say, I know something is true, and then you say, I believe something is true, the first statement tends to carry more weight than the second one. And that's because we have drifted in how we understand the word faith. Faith throughout Scripture means I know and I trust in the character of God to do what he said. And there's no weak form of knowledge in that. That's just a modern perversion of the word faith. And so tonight I'm going to start where we left off and keeping you in mind that the word of God is no stronger than it's being understood. If the word of God and the, its meaning is not clear, the dunamis, the, the, the word that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 14, is not there. The power of the gospel depends upon people understanding the gospel. Hence, therefore, the missionaries are struggle with translating it into the language. And what I'm saying in this, and it sounds obvious, but why I'm saying this is we live in a, in a culture that is distancing itself from our traditional culture. And we are increasingly put in the position as Christians in the workplace, in the schools, wherever we happen to be and function, we are increasingly facing people that literally do not understand what we thought people understood 40 or 50 years ago. The culture is drifting away from traditional meanings. And it's up to us as, as ambassadors for Christ to make sure people understand. And so when we come to the framework, we want to think about the sufficiency of Scripture. One of the temptations that the church has faced down through the centuries, and it's rampant in our evangelical circles today, is the doubt of the sufficiency of Scripture. All scriptures God breathed and profitable for doctrine, proof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now, the scripture was given to be sufficient. What is happening is people believe now, well, we have to add something to the scriptures. We have to add 
um, all kinds of psychology. We have to add counseling to the scripture because the scripture somehow doesn't have the answers. As though God, the omniscient one, when he revealed his words, didn't really understand what was going on. And it's in its absurd position, but it is happening all over the nation. So when we come to some of the texts we're going to look at tonight, we're going to go through some of the great addresses in Scripture. I'm going to show you that those addresses are structured to answer the problem we have of clarifying what this, this scriptural text mean. These guys, under the, under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, worked a method of training people down through the centuries that emphasized clarity. It emphasizes clear thinking. Christianity, unlike other religions, is a cognitive faith. You cannot believe unless you think through things. And so when we think about uh, the way the scriptures are structured, if you think in these three terms, whenever you work with a passage of scripture, as we will tonight, observe how the author teaches a doctrine or doctrines, plural, and he will deliberately phrase it so it contrasts with its perversion. They never treated equal and opposite. We're not sampling a cafeteria here. But the scriptures are always set against something. The epistles of Paul were written to real churches facing particular historical situations. And the doctrines taught in those epistles answered that local situation in time and space. But under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that whole church situation was engineered to cause the word of God to come forth and address it. So we, 20 centuries later, can benefit from that. That's the sufficiency of scripture. History is designed by our Savior. History has a flow to it. So truth versus vanity. Watch for that when you read a text of scripture. Always think of the word of God as light penetrating darkness. Always think of it adversity. The, the, there's an adversarial element in all passages of Scripture. A second thing to look at is that God will repeat a truth in different contexts. He will repeat himself here, 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 here. But each one of these contexts is slightly different. And that's to show us that that truth has a flexibility to it. It has a range to it. The promise of God to Israel includes economics, it includes military warfare, it includes the home life, it includes the education life. So God, by showing us the same doctrine in different situations, teaches us the range of the truth. So we have the contrast to look for in a text, we have the range of meaning in the text, and then we have the context. And by context here, I'm not talking about what you normally would think of context in the literary sense, the context of the passage. That, that's important. But what I mean here by context is the larger plan, the larger picture, the overall idea of truth all over the universe. God's total plan for his creatures from eternity to eternity. All the doctrinal truths are part of that larger picture. Now we can go on and say something about context. And this is something that we want to listen for. If we have some non-Christians in our families, in our communities, 
in our schools, and you're discussing them in a gracious, friendly way, just remember every statement comes loaded with presuppositions. And sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it isn't obvious. And you have to listen further. But finally you realize these people are coming at you from a certain perspective. All sayings, all addresses, all words, all questions have a context. I spent some time on this last night, but tonight I just want to quickly remind you that the Bible picture of reality is larger than appearance. Remember Hebrews 11? The things which appear were not made of things which are seen. And this is the refutation for this crass, careless, scientific attitude that certain people have that science is everything, not realizing what science is. I work with it every day. Science deals with the unobservable all the time. Every time one creates a model, every time one discovers a law, every time one builds a mathematical piece of logic to handle data, that is not an observed thing. The data is observed, but the logic behind the analysis is something that is not observed. And so reality is always bigger than appearance. That's the tone. And want to study, study that in its detail. Study Hebrews chapter 11. Because all the characters listed in Hebrews chapter 11 looked at appearance and realized that appearance is not the whole picture. There's an stuff which doesn't appear that is real. God doesn't appear at all times, but he's real. Angels don't appear. Angels can't be measured by any scientific instrument, but they appear. They, they, they can appear at times, but they're part of reality. Logic doesn't appear. You can't smell it. You can't see it. You can't measure it, but it's there. In fact, you can't make a universal statement without referring to something that's absolute, comprehensive, and that is something that can't be measured. So reality in the Bible is larger than appearance. Now, this statement I have is just kind of a facetious one, but this is one of the problems the unbelievers have. You will get in frequently stated that people will say to you, well, we really don't know things, and they have this sort of pseudo-humility that, well, we're humble, we, we know that there are unknowns out there. And yet when it comes to Scripture and the historic reports of what went on, the exodus, the resurrection, the crossing of the Red Sea, uh, these sorts of things we know can't be true. Now just think about this statement. We don't know anything for sure except the Bible can't be true. That's a self-refuting statement. Because if you know the Bible can't be true, then you know something for sure. So the two parts of the sentence don't fit together. This is what I'm talking about. When the Bible describes unbelief as vanity, habel, Hebrew word, book of Ecclesiastes, or mateotes in the New Testament word vanity, that's what the apostles mean. That unbelief ultimately refutes itself. It is filled with internal contradictions. And it's sad, but it has to be that way, because what is unbelief but a perversion of truth? What happened to Adam and Eve moments after the fall? They changed their theology. They changed the idea that the omnipresent God could be avoided by hiding in the trees. Well, if you think that God can be avoided by hiding in the trees, you have just created a false theology. An omnipresent God can't be hidden from. But they tried. 
because instantly the fall started deforming and perverting and corrupting doctrine. Doctrine is corrupted by sin and it has to be graciously restored by God. Now, last night we went through one of the great addresses in the Bible, Joshua 24. Tonight, let's turn to the Old Testament one more time into Psalm 78. I'm going to go through a series of passages uh, tonight, all of which are designed in a parallel form, all of which are source material for what we call the framework. That is, the sequence of events that are divinely arranged to teach doctrine and teach it in such a way that it's real history. This is not some religious language off in the land of mysticism somewhere. This is what we call real history. That means this knowledge is public, not private. So in Psalm 78, we have this reflection by Asaph. And he's addressing the nation. Notice verse 1. He says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard, which we have known. Our fathers have told us. We won't hide them from our children. We are telling them to generation to come, the praises of the Lord. And he begins to narrate in Psalm 78 a series of events. If you'll skip down to verse 12. Marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers, in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea, caused them to pass through, and he made the waters stand up, obviously talking about the Exodus event. Uh, also, uh, you, you go on in verse 15, he's talking about what happened after the Exodus out in the wilderness. He's treating that as history. This is not mysticism. Then in verse 17, he talks about the fact they sinned more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. They tested God in their heart. Now, what do you think Asaph is doing here? Let's think about this a moment. Imagine us listening to this man. He's addressing the nation and he's rehearsing our history. But notice how he does it. He goes through these verses. He describes what happened to our national history, what happened to our grandfathers, what happened to our fathers. And then he makes this observation. They sinned more against him. Now, what he is doing here is doing this contrast. Remember I said, watch for these things in the text. He's contrasting what with what? He's contrasting the faithfulness of God to adhere to his word with the unfaithfulness of us fallen beings against his word. And see, watch the contrast as it goes on. The faithfulness of God, the unfaithfulness of Israel. Now, let's ask another question. Why is that an issue here? Why does he keep doing this? Because think of context. Maybe we can think of it this way. If we ask the question, who were the first historians in history? Now, I learned as a non-Christian in my education, my public education, and whenever somebody said the first historians of history, uh, I was told that the first historian were, was Thucydides and uh, Herodotus, the Greeks. And they wrote, they did, they wrote history. But were they the first ones to write history? Think about it. The first historians were the authors of the Old Testament, right? Who wrote Joshua? Why was the history of the Old Testament written? The Old Testament was written 
because God had made a contract with the nation. Remember what we said about contracts. A contract is a public agreement between two parties and it stipulates an acceptable behavior and an unacceptable behavior. When God enters into a contract with his nation and he promises them certain things to take place in history, now a historian is important because the historian is recording the events that commemorate and monitor and validate the contract. So once you talk about covenants and contracts, biblically, you have already required, you've already involved the issue of writing and recording history. But you see, the difference between these first historians and the Greeks that are always looked up to in the secular educational area, the Greeks always thought of history as cyclic or they thought of history as just loose marbles, no pattern to it. But isn't it interesting, the judges who composed these texts, they thought of history as something that is going somewhere. History has a goal. History is coming from here and it's going to there. And the pathway through history is the result of God's covenant, God's contract, all the fine print in the contract. So they were interested in history. I was never interested in history as a non-Christian. I became interested in history after I became a Christian. Because what, the way history was taught to me in the public school was just memorize the dates and burp them up on the test on Monday. So I'd memorize the test and get an A and go on, forget it, study some more dates and burp them up on the next test for the next week. It was just a cycle. But nobody, not one teacher did I ever have that sat me down and said history has a goal. History has going somewhere. There's a pattern to it. Because history ultimately, the word is his story. And so the, the historians who were the first people out of the box are the godly men and women of the Old Testament. And they had a reason for being interested in history. They were checking God's performance against the contract. And they were also checking their performance against the contract. That's the motivation for history. And so Asaph goes on through this, and that's why he does this contrast thing. And then he says in verse 21, he talks about God responding to their sin. Therefore, the Lord heard this was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob. Anger came up against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Yet he had commanded the clouds above. He opened the doors of heaven. He rained down man on them to eat and he gave them the bread of heaven. Now, what attribute of God is that in there? Grace, grace. It's his love and his grace. So he's saying, learn something, nation. Here God is, he gives you the standard, you violate the standard, and he keeps on providing for you. Logistical grace, 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 grace. What does that tell you about the performance of God? You see, they're learning about the performance of God by watching history. And so he goes on and he describes more about it. Verse 26, he's describing more of the provisions. You come on down to verse 40. How often they provoked him in the wilderness. They grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed him from the enemy. Notice that phrase. This is a type of text that happens hundreds of times in the Old Testament. The word remember. Why? Because God was faithful to his promises and that's a matter of historical record. See, in order to validate a contract, you have to have a record of performance. But you can't have a record of performance until you have what? Witnesses. 
And so this is also an implication of the covenant structure of the Bible. Not only does the covenant instruction of the Bible imply that you have to have history, but it implies that you have to have an inerrant history. The witnesses to the performance cannot be uh, discredited. So the only way you can't discredit a witness is if the witness is telling you the truth. So implied in the whole contractual structure of the Bible is inerrancy. Inerrancy is implied by the covenant structure. And so it goes on and you can see he, he's, he goes back to the Exodus and we could go on through the psalm, which we won't tonight because we don't have time. But you get a picture. Psalm 78 is a narration of the history of Israel up to the time of Asaph. Now we're going to go further in the Old Testament, but we're going to go backwards in the text further chronologically to Nehemiah. So if you turn back to Nehemiah just before the Psalms, Nehemiah chapter 9. Now Nehemiah comes later in history. This is after the exile and the nation has been gone through the ringer. They've been disciplined. They've been scattered abroad and they've come back, part, partly come back. And at Nehemiah chapter 9, we have a national confession. This is sort of a, like a corporate 1 John 1, 9 thing, where the nation is led in a prayer of confession of their sin by Nehemiah. Now, you can't confess sin if you don't have a record of what the sin is. And you can't have a record of what the sin is unless you have a standard to identify what sin is. So, see, all of this is tied together. You have to have a legal contract set up the standards of behavior, then you have to have you have a yardstick to measure that. But you have to have a record of what it went on. So in Nehemiah, what do they do? Nehemiah, on the 24th day of the month, the children of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth, the dust on their heads. Then those of the Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood and they confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law. Now watch how long that day they spent looking at the word of God. This is a real thing. It really happened. The whole nation came together. They read from the book of the law, their God, one-fourth of the day, and another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord God. So this wasn't some little sermonette for Christianettes. This was a long series of going through the text of the word of God. And now watch what the text is. See, here's the praise. But in verse 7... As you see how it starts. He says, you alone are Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens. Now, people ask when I I'll later show you the, the framework and the sequence, where did I get the framework from? Just went through these passages, took a piece of paper and a pencil and wrote down the same thing these guys are emphasizing. What does this start with? It starts with creation, doesn't it? So guess what? That's the first element in the framework. He says, you are alone, O Lord. You have made heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all your hosts. You are the Lord. You chose Abram, brought him out. There's the call of Abraham, the start of the nation Israel. You gave him the name Abraham. See, there's the covenant. Verse C, he made a covenant with them. He made a contract to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hizite, the Amorites, and so on, to give it to his descendants. And now, notice this statement by Nehemiah at the end of verse 8. After he talks about the covenant... After God has entered into this agreement, put it in writing. The issue is, do we have covenant performance or do we have covenant violation? What does it say? You have performed your words, for you are righteous. See, what the, see the logic in the text? That's why these guys are interested in history. They're not chasing cycles like the pagan Greeks. 
They're looking to see that God means what he says. That's what interests them in history. Now look verse 9. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. You heard their cry by the Red Sea. After the call of Abraham, what's the next event? The Exodus. You see how these guys reiterate this over and over. And then you can go on down, dividing the sea in verse 11. Verse 13, what's that event? It says, you came down also on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws. That's the giving of the law. So now we've got the call of Abraham, Exodus, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. You just have to go by and just see the sequence. You gave them bread. There's the conquest of the land. They, hardened their, they, they and their fathers acted proudly, hardened their hearts. They did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey. See, there's the violation of the, con, the covenant. But you are God. You're ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger. There's God's grace. Verse 18, they made a molded calf. There's the idolatry. There's the fracturing of the covenant. And then God is merciful to them. There's grace again. And you can go on down through the address of, of Nehemiah. It's the same thing. Come down to verse 23. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. Is that what he told Abraham? Fine point contract? You bet. Is that what he did? Yes, he did. Is this public knowledge in, in history? Yes, it is. Now, let me just throw in a remark here. This is why unbelievers always want to rewrite history. That's what they're doing to our American history right now. The whole point of revisionism is to cover up the divine and gracious influences in the founding of our nation. Why is that? Because history testifies to God. And if you want a universe safe for sinners who want to exclude God from their lives and not be reminded of their ultimate responsibility to him, then what you have to do, you have to do, is either forget history or rewrite history. But true history is always the friend of the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the people went in and they possessed the land. There's the conquest. There's the conquest and settlement. And then in verse 26, it talks about the kings. And then it talks about the exile and so forth and so on. So see the sequence? It's a playing out. This is not like I learned history in my public school. This is not saying, gee, guys, remember the date here, remember the date here, and this is what happened here. We won't go into the meaning, but that happened. Just remember it for the test. This happened. Just remember it for the test. That's not the spirit of this text. What it's saying is God is faithful, and therefore you can trust him. Pretty basic theology here. All right, now we come to the New Testament, and we want to pick up two very important passages by Paul. Because Paul does the same thing. But these passages are not addressed to Israel. These passages are addressed to pagans, to Gentiles who have no biblical background. And it's going to be fascinating to watch how Paul deals with this. I am convinced that there are two places in the book of Acts that prove conclusively what it looked like when Paul used the doctrine of Romans 1 in an actual street situation. So let's turn to Acts 14. See, there's a difference. There's a cultural difference here. This is more like what we face. We're not talking to Jews with a biblical background. We're not back in the days of the Old Testament in Israel. We're more like Paul was in a pagan environment. So what do we do? 
Well, Paul faced a problem in both Acts 14 and Acts 17. I'm going to emphasize Acts 17 and spend most of our time there tonight because that's where a lot of the details are. But I want to take you to Acts 14. In Acts 14, the story starts in verse 8. It's a little segment here. Watch what happens. In Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul observed him intently and seeing he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, now watch this. Here's an event that happened. It was a work of God. Now, watch the perverted interpretation. See, something's real. The unbeliever looks at reality, but he falsely interprets it. The Christian standing there, there's Paul standing there. So now he's got unbelievers watching something that happened who take away the wrong message. They are not capable of interpreting what they're seeing with their eyes and hearing with their ears. They can't get it together properly. In other words, the meaning of what has gone on here is not clear to them at all. They have perverted it. And so what do they do? Look Look what they do. Isn't this amazing? They're looking at Paul and Barnabas. They just healed this guy. And they're saying... The gods have come down to us in the likeness of man. See, that's their pagan categories. They just can't get the biblical story. They think in terms of their own unbelief. They're trying to, like that amoeba diagram I showed, it's the amoeba trying to swallow up the meaning of this event. So now Paul has to deal with this. So let's watch what Paul does. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men, and Barnabas they call Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates. This took some time here. This created a whole uh, social upheaval. The priest starts bringing oxen in. I mean, these things are thousands of dollars worth of expense. This is a major undertaking that's going on. Maybe Paul didn't uh, hear of it or he wasn't aware of it right away. But but all of a sudden, this movement, you know, something happened here. And all of a sudden, the rumor goes all over the city. Are some of our media, this is the kind of stuff they do when reality hits, they misinterpret it. So the priest of Zeus, he begins this thing, he starts this mass movement. Now, verse 14. When the, uh, the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, they tore their clothing, ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, what are you doing these things for? What is going on? See, they challenge the false interpretation. Why are you doing these things? We are men with the same nature as you and preach to you. We would turn from these useless things. There's that technical word, vanity. He said, your whole system of interpreting life is wrong. Turn from this vain system that you've got. Put on your glasses and look at reality. You're looking through a fog at reality. Turn from these useless vanities to whom? Now, watch the theology. He's dealing with a group of unbelievers, so does he tell a Jesus story right away? He's not telling a Jesus story right away, is he? What is he doing? He's going back to Genesis 1. Now, why do you suppose Paul goes back to Genesis 1 and doesn't start with the Gospel of John? Because in Genesis 1, we have the creation event that separates the creator and the creature. 
and you have to create a creature distinction. And until that distinction is clear, you cannot proceed and understand correctly the rest of the Bible. Just kiss it off. Because you cannot understand it without understanding who God is, that he is the uncreated, eternal, immutable, loving, sovereign, holy, righteous being. And we are a finite creature. That we were created and there was a time when only God existed and then he created the universe. So Paul says, why are you doing these things? We are like nature with you. Look at us. I have flesh and bones. He says, I'm the same. Your interpretation is totally wrong. Turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. And what Paul is doing that, he is, he, this is probably a, a summary by Luke of what he's doing. He's going through history. See, see that clause where it says he, um, he allowed nations to go this ways? That's his interpretation of why pagan religion exists. It's actually developed out of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter four, if you want references there. But Paul is relying on the Deuteronomic analysis of pagan history. And it comes right out here. He's not quoting Deuteronomy, but he's alluding to it because that's where he's getting his information on how do you explain all these pagan religions all over the place? It's because God let him do it. It's all perversions. They wanted to do it. So God said, hey, go ahead, be my guest, knock yourself out. But I'm going, to, I'm going to reserve one nation as, as sort of the greenhouse where I'm going to protect my plants. And I'm going to have a, my own sovereign nation, and that is going to be the conduit of revelation. And I'm going to make my covenants with that one nation. I mean, he doesn't go into all that right now because he's dealing with a non-Jewish group. He's dealing with a group of unbelieving pagans. Now let's come to Acts 17. You see Paul do the same thing here. It's the same trigger that happens. Paul, in this case, isn't healing someone, but he's been preaching, and in particular, he's been arguing both in the synagogue and out on the street. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So this, this is a, it started out in the street here. This wasn't a, a lecture in some university classroom. This was witnessing to people in the marketplace, discussing with them the, these issues. Well... Some, some of the people heard this. And the Epicureans, it says, and the Stoics. These, these are some of the philosophers in Athens. This is Athens, by the way. This is the intellectual center of the ancient world. This is where Plato was. Plato had his academy here. This is where Aristotle was. This is where the early philosophers of Europe, Europe European, the roots of European thinking, this is where it was. So here he is. He's witnessing about this Messiah coming. And now the Epicureans encountered him and they say, what does this babbler want to say? He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, let's see if I can get here. Watch what he does. Remember this diagram I showed it a few nights ago. I said that I should have put it on the right side, but I got it on the left. Pardon me. The truth here is that we have the creator creature distinction. On the other side is the human viewpoint, the unbelief, or paganism. Now, what Paul's facing here is, he's facing a total pagan interpretation of life. This is a total picture. That's why I want to impress upon you. It's not a piece here or a piece there. This is a total way of looking at life. Now, Paul's got a problem. Because what's happening in verse 18 is that these guys have heard him speak of hiesu. Greek word for Jesus. 
They also heard him speak of this anastasis, anastasis, and that's the Greek word for resurrection. But see, because they don't have a frame of reference, they think every time they heard the word Jesus and resurrection, they think, geez, these must be two new gods they're talking about. Now, remember the first night I took you to 1 Samuel 5, and we talked about syncretism, didn't we? And we said, you have to be careful, because people love to add Jesus to the other deities. And this is very popular in America today. The thing that is most offensive for, uh, that we are to our society is that we believe Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth and the life. Now, you can go out there and talk about Jesus all you want to, but you start saying that he is the only way to God, you've got a real problem, see? Because that is an absolute truth that gets rid of syncretism. Well, now Paul has to be careful because if he isn't, these guys are going to, oh, gee, this is Jesus is an interesting deity. Let's, let's bring him on in and let's join the pantheon. We've got 15 gods and we've got room here. Let's, let's, let's bring Jesus in. But you see, if Jesus comes in like that, that's not the Jesus of Scripture. That is an emaciated, perverted, um, distorted view of Jesus. And he doesn't want to do that. So now Paul's got to do something. And in all the verses that follow until the end, he is not necessarily dealing with the gospel heart. In fact, it's hard to even see where he even gets to the cross. He doesn't even get there yet. Why doesn't, he, why doesn't he go ahead and say, Christ died for your sins? They can't understand that. They're not ready for that truth yet. They haven't mastered the creator-creature distinction yet. So you can preach the gospel and it just becomes screwed up. So he's got to straighten them out as to who Jesus and resurrection is. Now watch what he does. And again, we have to go through this pretty fast tonight, but this, this is, you could spend weeks going through this address. And if you have a study Bible, what I urge you to do sometime is take a, take a note, loose leaf, couple of sheets of loose leaf paper and diagram the logic of Paul's argument in Acts 17, what's going to start right now. And then look in your study Bible for the Old Testament references that he's alluding to, you will be amazed at how much Old Testament material he's using in this sermon. He never directly quotes it, but you know, when you compare it, you can tell what verses in Isaiah he's using. And if you watch your study Bible and you list the Old Testament references, you'll discover something else that's interesting. It's a certain place in the Old Testament he's quoting. He's quoting a part of Isaiah that was written just prior to the Jews going into exile. In other words, in the closing days of the fall of the nation, Isaiah was preaching to the Jews, you're going to live for 70 years in a pagan society. Now, I'm going to teach you how to live there. I'm going to teach you what paganism is. I'm going to teach you its weaknesses. I'm going to teach you not to get syncretistically absorbed into it. And so it's that passage, because Paul didn't have the New Testament, didn't exist. He went back to the scriptures of his day. See what he said? The sufficiency of scripture. Even though this was centuries after Isaiah, even though Paul himself, under, under the greatest Gamaliel and all the other instructors that he had, Paul was brilliant. He had studied Greek thought. He read them. He, he knew all this. But he doesn't start with Plato. He doesn't start with Aristotle. He doesn't start with the rabbinic traditions. What does he start with? Passages out of the Old Testament. The truths of Scripture. Now watch what he does. Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill, verse 22. 
Men of Athens, I perceived in all things you're very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Notice then from this first reference, Paul listened and he observed the people he was trying to preach to. He didn't preach to a wall. He didn't preach to a preconception of what these people thought. He had done his homework. He had gone around like a good missionary and said, what, what did people believe? He'd obviously gone around and read the inscriptions because he says, here's an inscription. Now, you guys have confessed that what he's looking for is a place in, their, in the pagan worldview where they've compromised. See, ultimately, all unbelievers have to be hypocrites. And you may find that strange because we are usually the people called hypocrites. But if you think about it, every unbeliever has to be a hypocrite. The reason is, is that at heart they know God exists, but in their life they want to deny that he exists. And there's a tension there. The unbeliever will tell you he doesn't believe in God necessarily, or at least the biblical God, and then go out and make a moral judgment. Where does the moral judgment come from? And so what Paul's talking about here is, you philosophers, you profess to know everything, yet, you know what? Back on Fifth Avenue someplace in Athens, I noticed you had a little inscription up there to the unknown God. So what he's done now is says, see, you guys have a crack in your armor. You admitted that there are things you do not know. Now, you just opened the door and I'm going to drive a Mack truck right through it. So he starts with one of their own weaknesses. You admitted that you don't know about this God. So he says, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I will proclaim to you. Now, observe, observe the logic of the address. Does he tell a Jesus story or does he go back to Genesis again? What did he do in Acts 14? Pagan audience? He went back to creation. What does he do here in Athens? The center, the intellectual center of the ancient world? He goes back to creation. Why does he go back to creation? Because it's that event that defines the nature of God. Him I proclaim to you, God who made the world, everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven, he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Robbie went there and he's got some slides, which I'm sure he'll show you if he hasn't already, of where Mars Hill is and where the Parthenon is. And it's conceivable that Paul's standing there on Mars Hill and he says, look at that. There's your great temple. And he has that in mind. So immediately he teaches the creator-creature distinction and he says, God, you know, creator-creature distinction, once you see that, you know he doesn't, he doesn't live there. He can't be confined to the temple if he made the whole universe. So what is he doing? He's contrasting the left side of the screen with the right side of the screen. And he's going to do it at point after point after point after point. He doesn't just talk about one issue. He talks about dozens of issues. Why does he take up dozens of issues? Because he wants people to realize at the end he's going to tell them, I want you to repent. He's not talking about crying down in front of the church. He's talking about profoundly changing their entire way of thinking. It's that old illustration that Robbie uses and, and uh, I use. It's, it's, it's as though you were going to have an interior decorator come to your home. And you plan on the wallpaper, you plan on the design of this room, and you want to adjust this wall, you want a door over here, and you want you, so you t get all the plans done. And you wait anxiously for this, this party to show up. And then you hear a big loud noise in your front yard one day. And the guy's out there with a bulldozer. Uh, I wanted my kitchen changed. 
No, I'm going to wreck your whole house and I'm going to rebuild it. You're going to do what? I, I just wanted an interior change. When, we don't do interior changes. We do total changes. You wanted your room changed? We're going to change your room. We're going to change your whole house. Now, that's the way Paul presents the word of God. You pagans, I'm not asking you to accept Jesus and stick him into one of your rooms. I'm going to knock your whole house down and we're going to rebuild because every part of your house is wrong. So this is why now he starts and he starts attacking them at one point after another, contrasting the God of Scripture and what you guys believe. Watch him. He says, God made the world. Therefore, he doesn't dwell in temple with hands. He's not worshipped with men's hands. He doesn't need anything. You guys are always giving offerings to God. Was he hungry? Is God, the creator, hungry? Think about it, fellas. He's talking to these people. So he's attacking their whole concept of worship, human merit. This doesn't mean anything to God. Then he gets on to verse 26. The Greeks were a very proud people. They call the uneducated classes the barbarians. We are the Hellenists. We are the superior class. And then there's the, the barbarians, the scumbags. And he says, this God who created the heavens and the earth made of one blood all nations of men. So your concept of race and culture goes out the window. We're going to bulldoze that one out of the way. We're going to bulldoze your temples out of the way. We're going to bulldoze your system of worship out of the way. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And then he says this, a summary of the, the way history goes. Last weekend I was in Connecticut and we were talking about this verse in connection with the tsunami. The city that's nearest the epicenter of that tsunami was known in the locale around it as the veranda of Mecca. You know why? Because Ak was the place where the extreme fundamentalists lived. They had excluded Christians. There's eight people groups there who have no contact with the scriptures. And most importantly and most interestingly, the Christians in that area for five years have had a 24-hour prayer chain going to crack that city. Now, we can't say, you know, God was judging them, but it's interesting that that was the city near the epicenter. In a few moments, God shook a tectonic plate that changed the island of Sumatra. I was talking to a friend of mine in the National Mapping Agency, and he was saying, we've got to remap those islands. Those islands were changed in a matter of hours. One little slip in a tectonic plate. How many angels do you think God sent down there and said, hey, would you do a little work for me down there? I'm going to shake the people up. He shook them up, didn't he? In a few quick instants. So he says, here's the key to history. It's not psych like you guys. It's not like Herodotus told you. It's not like Thucydides. He says, God has determined the pre-appointed times of nations and the boundaries of their dwellings, he says. So that purpose clause, here's the teleology of history. Purpose clause. I took many history courses and nobody ever told me the purpose of history. It's right here. Right in the heart of pagan Athens, he says your concept of history. We're going to bulldoze that out of the way. God has made history so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for he would live and move and so on. The teleology or purpose of history is to keep men conscious of him. To elevate human responsibility over and over. Why? So they'll seek the gospel. The gospel is an answer to a question. If people aren't answering the question, the answer doesn't make much sense. 
So you have to shake up the environment to cause people to ask the right questions. And that's what he says is the purpose of history. And then he quotes the poets. And there's a big debate exegetically about why he quoted the poets. I believe the reason he quoted the poets is he's saying your own poets are conscious of God. They pervert it, but they're conscious of God. See, Paul read their literature. And then he says in verse 29, he starts making conclusions toward the end of this sermon. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of him. A divine nature is like gold or silver, something shaped by art and man's devising. So again, he's bulldozing out all of their religious position. And now he says this. Now he's coming down to the conclusion. Remember what I said? What were the two words that he needed to clarify? Hasn't got to the gospel yet. None of this is the gospel as such. This is all preliminary to the gospel so they can understand the gospel. And he's got these two words, Jesus and resurrection. And he's trying to get this across to people who haven't got a clue to what this is all about. So he's gone through this address showing that they've got to tear down everything they they believe. It's a total change, a total repentance, a total deep, deep change. And now he's coming down to the conclusion. Watch what he does. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all men everywhere... There's a universal thing. That's see, there's Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't command you to join. You're not going to have Jesus join the rest of these guys. We're going to throw them all out. And moreover, everybody's going to throw them all out because Jesus Christ is the only answer. So you can just bulldoze all the houses on the block because God is saying to every people. See, there's the universality of the gospel. Why? Verse 31, because he is appointed a day. And now here's where he's going to tie in those two words, Jesus and resurrection. Because he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, and he has given assurance of this all by raising him from the dead. Now they heard the resurrection, some mocked, and so on. You see what he did? He placed Jesus and the resurrection inside a framework. He gave them a frame of reference so they could understand these two words. Because he knew, I can't witness to these people and clarify the gospel if they can't even get this. So I've got to lay the groundwork. And in doing that, he had a total worldview collision. It wasn't arguing about this point or that point. He demolished the whole house, every area of their life. He destroyed their worship. He attacked their temples. He undercut their whole religious ceremony. He destroyed their view of history. He argued that they couldn't, they were, they were totally wrong in where they thought history was going. Didn't understand a thing. That is an example, I believe, Acts 17 is giving us a model today of how to work in a, in a pagan environment. Remember I showed this. Let, let's think about what, why Paul does this. If we present the Word of God in bits and pieces, bits and pieces can be encompassed, can be neutralized. It's too easy for unbelief to swallow up the Word of God when we put out a little tidbit, when we put out a little piece of the truth. So what the framework does, how Paul works in Acts 17, is, this is the framework, I'm going to go beyond it, What he does, he takes the word of God as a team of truths. See what he did in Acts 17? It's five or six truths there. List them. Take a piece of paper, pencil, and go through the text. And you'll see that it wasn't one truth. He's going to get to the truth of the resurrection and the truth of Jesus. 
But besides those two truths, he's dealt with creation. He's dealt with history. He's dealt with the attributes of God. And he's gone through all these things. So in this diagram, all the little green blobs are pieces of doctrine and truths that are woven together in a network. Now what is unbelief going to do? It can't encompass it because it's trapped itself inside the network. So this is, a, this is a strategic maneuver that's going on in the scriptures. And that's why I said that's how the Holy Spirit worked in church history. All the word of God together operates as a team. And you can't take isolated chunks of it and draw arguments from it. Paul doesn't do that. He presents the entire picture. And I just, you know, just throw out the question. How skilled are you in, say, 15 minutes? Can you succinctly state... The overview of Scripture. It takes you less than 15 minutes to read Acts 17. Paul did it. And Paul must have done this again and again. Because we saw in Acts 14, he did a parallel thing. I conclude that what we see in Acts 14 and 17 was probably done dozens and dozens of times in the streets of the ancient world. It was a method Paul used of challenging unbelief and putting out the scripture and the Bible truths in such a way that it became very, very difficult for the unbelievers to reject it without totally rejecting the entire thing. He forced them to a decision. That's why at the end of this, he talks about repentance. Now, we say there's the framework and we're going to end here shortly. And I'll be open for questions. If those of you who have to leave, fine. If you'd like to stay around for a few minutes, we can go through this. I just throw this, this slide out quickly so you see where we have listed all of these different events. And you say, where did you get the list from, Charlie? I got the list from going through the scriptures. I just paid attention to what the apostles are doing. These are the events they keep talking about. So I figure, okay, good enough for Paul, good enough for Charlie. Okay, we go on and let me show you what happens. Showed you this diagram back and this is the limitations of man and we study the limitations of man. The idea that if you believe in, in the natural science theory that you usually get in the school system or that you get in the media or mostly the Discovery Channel, then what happens is that you are limited to this area. And if you're limited to those areas, then you have no absolutes. You have no comprehensive statements. You, your knowledge is contingent. Why contingent, I mean, if you really believe this, if you really believe this, have the courage to take it to its logical conclusion. And you know what the logical conclusion is? That you don't know anything for sure, because if you have n pieces of data, you're always waiting for the n plus one piece of data to come in. And you never can be sure that the next piece of data is going to refute everything you know. Isn't that a delightful way of living? Having all your knowledge contingent on the next experience, the next thing that's going to happen. Can you live that way? Nobody can live that way. And that's why that's not a true picture. Real people are people made in God's image that live in this universe made by God. And they can come up with all the gimmicks and all the profoundly sounding statements. But when it comes to their personal life, they can't live this out. They have to invent a worldview to prevent them from being anxious about what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day or the next day or the new piece of data. You can't face total contingency in your life and not go crazy. Well, how does the Bible handle it? It handles it this way. Imagine a circle. Imagine those of you who had little geometry, that's an equation. You know, it's the circumference of a circle. 
What the Bible tells us is, and that's the little green parts, it said three points determine a circle. The scripture gives us the fact that God has covenantal design to history. And that means that all other points are going to be on that circle. We don't know what the other points are, but we know they all fall into place in the order and the sequence of God's covenant. What does that do for us now? Now can we live with stability? Of course we can. We have a basis. We know God through his word that his word controls all of reality. There's no chance there. Those little data points aren't going to slip off the circle. The circle defines the existence and location of every single point. And so that's a valid picture of the scriptures and how they handle all the facts of life. So that's the framework, and I suggest to you that you study Acts 14 and 17 yourself. This is not something you can learn just tonight in a few minutes. You've got to think about this. And think about maybe uh, one suggestion is to think about writing out on one or two pages a loose-leaf paper. Just think about writing it out. How would you have testified had the Athens Council found you as a Christian teaching your kids homeschool or something, and you got called before a forum? Hey. We want to hear what's going on. We hear that you're abusing your child. Give us an explanation. What would you do if you had to face a trial like Paul does here? Could you come off in 10 to 15 minutes and explain the point? I don't know whether we could do that or not. I'm saying it to myself, too. But it's a challenge we need to face. Can we do this? I think we ought to be able to do it because Scripture is sufficient and has given us examples on doing it. So, Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you that you provide in grace the sufficiency of Scripture, that you've given us all the neat truths that we know. And we ask that your Holy Spirit work with us so that we can become effective ambassadors in the 21st century, that we can become men and women who may not be liked, but we will be respected by our unbelieving friends, neighbors, and family members because they know that when they ask questions and when they are inquisitive of us and are where we stand on various issues, that we will have that quiet confidence, not in arrogance, but in humility. Humility because we bow our knee before your authority. It's not our ideas. It is the authority of your promises. It's the authority of Scripture. It's the authority of the Logos, the Word of God. Father, help us to be those strong, clear-cut ambassadors today. If we ask this in Christ's name, amen. We're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, questions for Charlie. And uh, I think we'll do like we did the other night. If you have a question, please raise your hand, and I'll bring the microphone out to you, and uh, that way everybody can hear your question. Not sure how long this will go, just however the questions go. So who has the first question? Ah, we have a question here. This, this is just asking you to repeat something. Would you repeat what you said about the city in Indonesia and the tsunami and the earthquake? Oh, okay. Did, did you say it was a Mecca for Islam over there? Yeah, what, what I'm saying is that um, uh, about the tsunami is that the uh, missionaries who are knowledgeable of that area and the culture have just noticed that that particular city that was so almost totally devastated uh, was the city where the most fundamental and extremist elements of Islam occupied. Um, they're so extreme there that 
as, as, as Indonesia has become, shall we say, semi-democratic and more, therefore, secular, they deeply resent that, and they're in the war of independence against Indonesia. And they also are places where the terrorists have been trained in that particular city. But what's most notable is that the Christians have really sensed the spiritual conflict there for years because they can, they can get into certain areas, but they, they can't crack that area. And so that's why they were praying for, for years and years and years about that one city. And it's kind of interesting, gee, the tsunami hits and it's that one city. Now, something about answered prayer. <laughs> but the other interesting thing about if you think about the, the water that came out, the tsunami reaction to the, to the, to the geology there, is if you draw a map, it's interesting that everywhere the wave went, there were basically non-Christian religions. And the day that it happened, up on the Indian coast, um, the Hindus had a ceremony in which they were bathing in the ocean for some one of their deities of water. And it was just that particular day that that tsunami hit. So, you know, God is a God of jealousy when it comes to people taking his honor. And um, we see that in the Old Testament. You know, the first Samuel 5 passage, when they stuck the Ark of the Covenant in Dagon's household, Dagon fell on his face. Another question over here. Okay, uh, this week they had the pictures from the moon of Saturn. The Titan mission was up there and they came to the conclusion there must be life Elsewhere in the universe, what were you take tonight? A comment on the life of the, in the universe? Well, the scriptures give a, a quite coherent picture um, that this planet is the place where he made life. And this is the planet where the throne is going to be established. The earth plays a central role in the whole cosmos. And it's interesting, and I'm, I'm not an astrophysicist, but it's very interesting that most of us have learned by tradition that this universe is this vast thing that's millions of years old and the earth is just a random point. And if you have had a chance and you're interested in this cosmology question, I would strongly recommend a little book. And this was written by one of the scientists at ICR who recently retired from the laboratory out at Albuquerque. Um, Russell Humphreys has written a book called Starlight and Time. It's a little one. It's available at the Institute for Christian Research, uh, icr.org. And it, it's, it's, it's confessedly speculative. But what he does in promoting his particular theory of the origin of the universe, on his way to doing that speculative theory, he makes some interesting observations. And that is that down through the last 50 years of cosmology, scientists have insisted that the universe is infinite. And they have various models of this infinity. And there's a reason why, because there were other scientific models that hold the universe is finite. And the debate is this. Is the, is the universe something that's limited and has an edge to it? Or is it an edgeless thing? And nine out of ten of the scientists in these fields um, believe that it has no edge. 
And there's a reason why, and, and Humphreys in that little book cites the reason why. Because if the universe really indeed has an edge to it, then if we sit on this planet and we look out at all angles, the southern hemisphere, northern hemisphere, we look east, we look west, and we do star counts, galaxy counts, if we are closer to the edge of the universe, there should be less stars and less galaxies in a certain direction, and there should be more in the other direction. Because it would stand to reason that the Earth wouldn't be at the center of the universe. But since we don't observe that, there seems to be an equal stellar density at all angles. Then if you hold the fact the universe has an edge, you have to confess the, the, the Earth is at the center of the universe. And that is so offensive that they would prefer to argue that the edgeless universe theory. But I, I cite that for you because here's another example, people, of the fact that you can have all of the scientific vocabulary you want to. Don't be seduced. Underneath, there is a pagan agenda that is constantly operating. The tragedy is when these stories are made, scientists discover this, scientists discover this, the editors of the newspapers and the articles and the TV things, they have to compress a story down to sell it. And it has to be a sensational story. I mean, go to the supermarket and look at the silly stuff that goes on there. Uh, you, you sell media by sensation. So when scientists would say, well, gee, we discovered a planet on galaxy XY, that makes a big headline. But if they developed it the way, if you read the detail literature, it was because they saw the light pattern and they have a theory about interpreting the light pattern and it also is combined with a theory of instrumentation and so forth and so on and, and it becomes a probabilistic statement. But you never get that because in the, in the popular media, there's never enough detail to follow the stuff up. So this is part of the propaganda. You just have to be shrewd enough to say, okay, there's probably some truth in what they're saying, but I'm not getting all the truth. And unless you have a weeks and you know the math and the physics, you, you can't get at it. Do you think that the intelligent design view will ever be taught? In the Excuse me, I, I can't hear you. Do you think that the intelligent design view will ever be taught in the public schools as a, as a viable option? To okay. Uh, the question is, uh, do I think intelligent design would ever be taught in the public schools? Uh, that's an interesting question. The intelligent design movement is, make, is making inroads. Um, the diehard secularists don't like this one bit, and they're fighting it legally. Um, I don't know where the debate's going to go. I just know that a lot of the intelligent design people are not necessarily strict creationists. But it's really a mild argument. All they're arguing for is design. And um, it, it's become vitriolic in, in laboratories. I mean, guys won't even speak to each other who, who are on both sides of this issue. And I think one of the good news stories is that there are some very competent scientists now leaning to intelligent design. And two weeks ago, the most outstanding atheist, Anthony Flew of, of Great Britain, has confessed that he's giving up his atheism. Now, that doesn't mean he's becoming a Christian, but the overwhelming evidence of intelligent design has forced him, as an honest thinker, to abandon his hard-nosed atheism. So, I think it's going to be a struggle, but I think what the intelligent design has done, the debate has done, it's forced the other side 
to say, to try to explain order out of chaos. And they're groping around. They're, they're hunting. And they're wounded. And their system is, is crumbling. But they are diehard legalists when it comes to the law. They, they've had a monopoly, an ideological monopoly in the public schools. And they are not going to retreat by agreement. They're going to have to be shoved out of the way. And it's going to be a push and shove operation. Any other questions? Are, are, are all of you, have you gone through some of the, uh, maybe some of you have heard the, um, have heard the, the tape series but haven't seen some of the pictures? Maybe if I just take a few minutes here, I'll show you what, when I was teaching that series, what I was showing the people that originally had the series. And we hope to somehow get this out. Um, that's one of the, this particular slide is one of the slides I used for the first section of the material. Uh, whoops, what happened? Oh, I don't know how Paul managed without all this equipment. It takes a little while to warm up, I think. Anyway, I had these, uh, these slides made because I just wanted to use repetition over and over and to associate in the mind of people these events, just trying to establish a frame of reference, that's all. So we, we, we know that there are certain events that the, that, uh, there it goes. Uh, we know there are certain events that occur again. Now this particular set, these first four, are the ones that if you take a paper and a pencil and you go through those speeches in the Bible, you'll see these that come up again and again and again. And on the right side, what I did is just take the doctrines, nothing new here, I'm not inventing anything new, all I'm doing is kind of arranging it. The doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, and the doctrine of nature are associated with creation. And with the fall, you have the doctrine of evil and suffering. With the flood, you have a first picture in history of judgment salvation. And I, I try to teach judgment and salvation together. Because every time God saves, he also judges, doesn't he? What did, what did he do in the Exodus? He judged Egypt. He saved Israel. And so it's important that people understand when God delivers, he also judges. So that's why I combine those two. And then when the, you have the Mosaic Covenant where God controls the outline of history. Um, and then I come to this diagram. This is my evil diagram. This was diagrammed to deal with the issue of evil. Um, of all the arguments against us, the one that you will face most frequently is anger over a God who allowed an infant to die, a son to be killed in an automobile wreck, or a fellow to be killed in battle. Uh, and people harbor resentments against God for allowing these kind of things to happen. And they, they'll become very indignant um, around you when you, you talk about the Lord or you share anything about the Christian life. Because there's this animosity about evil. And the philosophers love to jam this down college students and say, see... They always approach it logically. God is God good. God is sovereign. Evil exists. So therefore, what's the deal? Well, the deal is that God has a reason for doing that. That's the deal. And the book of Job tells you about it. So, so what I did here in this chart was to try to contrast. Remember what I said about when you teach truth, you ought to teach what it isn't. 
And so what I've done there is on the top part of that diagram, I've taught in a diagrammatic way what the Bible teaches about good and evil. And in the bottom, I've said, what's the alternative? You can laugh at the Bible fella, but you've got to believe something. Now, you've got to jump from one or the other. But you, you can't invent things by yourself. You are either going to believe the thing in the top or you're going to believe the thing in the bottom. And in the top, God is, you've got him going from eternity to eternity. His character never changes. He's always good. The radical thing of scripture is that in, you have creation. When God created everything, everything was good. And then you have, you have Satan falling and man falling. Does, I'm, I'm not talking about both of them individually. I'm just conceptualizing the fact that you have a fall. There's where evil originates. So since the fall isn't creation, it means that between CR and F, that period of time between the time God made the creation and the time Satan fell, time Adam fell, time all these things happened, different times, but the point conceptually is there was a time in there when the universe had no death, no sorrow, no sin. It was perfect. Now, no one outside of the Bible believes this. This is a treasure of truth that we ought to rejoice in. And I'll show you why in a moment. Then we come down through history where we live now with a mixture of good and evil in it. And then we're going to come down to the end when God is going to judge. And when God takes care of the evil problem, he takes care of it all right. He separates good and evil forever. Heaven and hell, or the, the, the exclusion of the lake of fire and so on. Now, that's, that's just a quick diagram to show you what? Is to show you that several things. That in the biblical worldview, we live in an abnormal state. When people are indignant about children dying, when people are indignant about hardships and suffering and all the death that goes on in the world, they, in that sense and in that moment, they're expressing their God consciousness. See, we're made for not this universe as it is. The fact that we get mad at evil is actually a good thing in the sense that it's a testimony, whether we're an atheist or not, an atheist, I love to watch an atheist mad over the problem of evil because it performs a perfect contact point. Because now what he's saying is, I believe this is wrong. This is abnormal. I'm not made for this. That's right. It's funny how you confess biblical truths. See, it doesn't belong anywhere except in the Bible. In the Bible alone do you have abnormality. Come down to the bottom part of the chart. Now what have you got? That's the position of unbelief. Good and evil have always existed and always will exist. Now what do the Oriental people do in, in the Oriental religious movement? They see this. That's why I've got the yin-yang there. The duality of good and evil. But it's always there. Darwin, the survival of the fittest. Nature is red in tooth and claw. You've always had death. Now, if you really believe this, if you really want to dig into that lower, lower worldview, then it's very depressing and you've got to do something about it. Now, what in the oriental religions do they do about this? Well, American college students are sort of naive and they think, oh, well, the orientals have reincarnation. You come back, you know, your aunt Tilda's dog or something now, the second time around. And... The real people that know uh, Eastern religion don't like reincarnation. It's only the naive American students that think it's cool. Cool idea, new age, reincarnation. This tells you why reincarnation is bad. 
Who wants to keep going round and round for a thousand times in a world that's always going to be good and evil, whether I'm an insect, an orange tree, or me? I'm still living in this mess. So therefore, Oriental religion has conceived of nirvana, where it is a suicide of the being. You go into non-existence. It, it is suicide elevated to the ultimate level where you don't just kill yourself, but you kill yourself in such a way, you don't physically kill yourself, but the idea is a, they use an ocean, a, a drop of rain falling into the ocean and dissipating. That's the, what, the Eastern idea of, of, of you just destroy yourself. Now, the reason they do that is because of this. They understand the implications of that view. So this diagram was created to try to explain the difference between the Bible kind of quickly and unbelief. And what it does, it precipitates a lot of thinking. Now we can start having a little discussion about, well, let's talk about this matter of evil. Who has the real problem? I think the unbeliever has the problem. Christians don't have the problem. And uh, then we come down to this next cluster of events. And this is the cluster that starts with the call of Abraham and comes up through the height of the Israel's Old Testament existence. The call of Abraham, there we have the doctrines of election, justification, and faith. Why do we make that alliance? Because what is Romans 4? Every time Abraham is mentioned by Paul, it's always in this area of faith and God calling him. The Exodus, another example of judgment salvation, like the flood. But what does the Exodus add that the flood didn't have? Blood atonement. Now we have blood on the door. Then we come to Mount Sinai. What is Mount Sinai a great picture of? See, if you can get in your mind's eye these great Old Testament pictures. And the Old Testament is not taught enough in our circles, people. Two-thirds of this book is Old Testament. That would seem to indicate two-thirds of our Bible teaching should be Old Testament. But it isn't. And the result is that we lack in imagination, in the depths of the imaginations of our soul, these pictures. If you think of Mount Sinai, think of Cecil DeMille's Ten Commandments. I mean, it was done years ago. But it was great. Charlton Heston's up there, and the, 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 Cecil DeMille showed very graphically God in the fire coming down and, and burning his Ten Commandments in. Why is that picture so important? Because it's a public a public, not a private, a public demonstration of revelation. The people down at the bottom of that mountain heard that. They saw that. This wasn't a dream Moses had. So right there, by just going back to that event, you get your head straight on what we're talking about by revelation. Said another way, when those people were sitting there, they heard the ten, ten words. They didn't hear it in English. They heard it in Hebrew. God actually spoke in Hebrew. Gee, I wonder how he knew Hebrew. So the point there is that you could have taken a videotape and taped the event. So if you think of judgment salvation as the exodus, you can let your mind's eye drift and think about what the exodus was like. Think of what the flood was like. Now you've got anchors for your theology and what judgment salvation is like. And you can go on. The conquest of settlement has been used by devotional writers for years for sanctification. Rise and reign of David, the stories of David, wonderful stories of sanctification. Um, let's see if I can advance this there. And we come down to the latter part, and this is the next section, part four of the, of the framework, where I go from the golden era of Solomon to the decline. I just start with a, the high culture, and then it just goes, it fizzles. 
And so the question in the Old Testament, why did it fizzle? You had a grand kingdom in the days of Solomon. You had the wisdom literature all written, the great learned areas of the Old Testament. And then it goes from great to then the whole thing caves in. The kingdom divides, the kingdom gets declined. And it's one story after another of sanctification, 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 discipline, 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 discipline. What do you learn? God spanks his sons. God disciplines his sons. He means what he says. You're free to choose, but you're not free to choose the consequences. This is a universe ruled by God's laws. And then we come down to Jesus Christ. It's like kind of messed up. And here we want to emphasize that he's the creator creature. Together, the hypostatic union. We have his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. And we emphasize all these things. His life. The fact that Jesus Christ tested out the filling of the Holy Spirit for the rest of the church age. Doctrine of kenosis and so on. And then we come, I, I, this is some diagrams I make here because I want people to see that you, when you con, are confronted with the word of God, you're going to respond one way or the other. But how you respond is largely the result of what's going on up here. And if you think about the virgin birth claim associated with the birth of Christ, and you reject it, it's probably because you entertain a pagan worldview of God, man, and nature. So when you're confronted with a king, you automatically make a misinterpretation, skeptics do, just like those people did in Acts 17. They couldn't get a clue what Jesus and resurrection was because their soul was so filled up with a perverted frame of reference. And then, if, of course, a person accepts it, it makes sense. Same thing with his appearance. It has to do with how people conceive of revelation. The king's death. This is very important. That people who reject the atonement of Jesus Christ have a problem. And you know what their problem is? They don't understand justice. Justice in the scriptures is, is revealed all through the Old Testament in order to prepare people so that when the Lamb of God has to die on the cross, they have to frame a reference to understand it. But today, there is no concept of justice out there. Revenge, maybe. Or theories of correction, correctional institutions, we call it, which don't correct, they graduate students in crime. And so we come on down, hopefully, to this. And this is the last section of the framework where we deal with Jesus Christ rises from the dead and he ascends into heaven. I have been considerably humbled by the fact that when I taught the first one, Ascension and Session, I went out on a limb and I said, I've never seen a real good hymn that speaks of the ascension and what Jesus does in the session. There's a lot of hymns about his death. There's a lot of hymns about his resurrection. But are there any hymns that commemorate what he's doing? And, of course, there are some. And some people that know their hymn books came to me with it. But the ascension and session is an extremely important event. Just think of what it is. At the helm of the universe, tonight, there's a human being. You can look at the, the moons on Titan and you can go, be excited about what NASA is doing with the exploration of outer space. But at the throne room of the entire cosmos, there's not a creature from galaxy 42. The question about other life forms. There is a God-man savior and we know his name. He is actually sitting on the throne room. He says he's sitting at the Father's right hand. And Stephen saw him. When that martyr happened, somehow there was video TV or something, and Stephen was able to look up, and he saw Jesus Christ get up off the throne and stand there to accept him as a martyr.
Now that is an exciting view of the cosmos, and you won't find it in Cosmology 101. See, the Bible is totally different, absolutely different in every area. The Pentecost, one of the great things, if you read those, those passages in the book of Acts with the Holy Spirit coming, it's a sign that he arrived in heaven. The fact that when Jesus Christ ascended at the Mount of Olives, he ascended into heaven, he was there successfully, and his first mission is to send the Holy Spirit. So the arrival of the Holy Spirit is a, an empirical justification, uh, empirical evidence of his session work. And Jesus Christ doing all kinds of things in his session work, praying for us, uh, meeting the adversity of Satan, all tied up with the angelic conflict. Then you have the emergence of the church, the maturing of the church. I always teach the maturing of the church because there's a temptation we all have that in one generation we're going to get all Bible doctrine together. We're getting all Bible doctrine together because of a lot of other people who went before us. We stand on the shoulders of previous people. And we can't get so arrogant that, you know, we're going to do things. This is why I find Reformed theology to be somewhat arrogant. Because what they did is they, the Reformers came up to this point in church history. They clarified the gospel. They did not clarify a lot of things. Luther and Calvin did not do certain things. They never clarified eschatology. They kept a Roman Catholic view of baptism. They kept the idea of the church state. There were lots of things that needed to be done. And we're not blaming Calvin and Luther for not doing it. They had enough to do. It was great that they did what they could do. But when people come along and they freeze theology to the way Luther and Calvin left it, that's saying virtually that the Holy Spirit went out of the teaching business in 1550. Now, is that right? Or is the Holy Spirit still illuminating the text to his body? Of course he is. So, doctrine it continues to be understood and developed. And then the destiny of the church, of course, the eschatology of the rapture and the bema. And, and that, that's the idea of the framework. That's the motif of going through. And the idea is when you get done, as I said before, I'm warning you, this is not a substitute for verse-by-verse teaching. Don't ever say that the framework is some course that replaces the teaching of the Word of God. It's not true. The framework is a method of pulling some of these things together in your head. And you could well go for years and never even have a course in the framework, but learn how to think like the framework. So when you're learning a Bible doctrine, you know that it fits into a frame of reference. That's all this is. It's just fitting it together. It's not a replacement for teaching the Word of God. It's not a replacement for good courses on apologetics. It's not a replacement for doctrinal studies. It's just a way of putting that material together. Well, I know I, we've kept you way over, so... Unless there's some overheated question here. Um, oh, the website, yes. Um, I really don't have much to do with this website, but Tommy Ice and his son decided they wanted to start a website with some of the material on it. It's cclough.com. Um, they operate in, from Arlington, Texas. But uh, if you want to go there, they, they have all these lessons in MP3. Uh, and then you have people here in the Houston area that have done a lot more refining of that. Um, and they, they've done a great job here. But the website is cclef.com. Yes, sir. I propose a covenant, not ask a question. If when you retire, you come back to Houston, we promise to take up a collection so that you can leave the area in August. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, Doug.